Wonderful. Lovely to uh, hear all the chatter. It's good to see the connections people make. And we'll have time at the end of service. Uh, we've got teas and coffee, so please join us at the end. It'll be great to um, have you um, share fellowship. Just to say to parents, sometimes the services finish at different times, but we've agreed with the children and youth program for parents not to pick up their children until 12.30 on a Sunday, um, just in case if the service finishes early, then just wait until 12.30. That would be wonderful. So this morning we're going to do something slightly different. I, I had kind of prepared a message and got up to the um, day of Thursday, and I was halfway through, but um, I'm not asking for sympathy here, but I developed a little bit of a condition called uvitis in my left eye. Um, I, I don't mind a little bit of sympathy then, okay. No, I don't mind that. <laughs> oh. And um, so, if you think when you came in this morning I was winking at you, I'm sorry I wasn't. <laughs> Um, or, scared, or scared you and you were thinking of sending an email of complaint. Uh, yeah, it, it's just... Uh, so I couldn't kind of finish off what I was going to share. But actually, joking apart, there's a couple of video talks that I think I just think everybody should listen to. They're just fantastic. There's one by Timothy Keller that we're going to see this morning because we've been looking at um, prayer over the last few weeks and particularly when the disciples says to Jesus, teach us how to pray. We've been looking at the sort of things that they learnt about prayer, about seeing God as a heavenly Father when Jesus says, our Father who art in the heaven, how to pray for God's kingdom to come and to pray for others. They would have seen Jesus pray for other people. But it's interesting that at Jesus' darkest hour around the time of the cross when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, he allowed his disciples to come and be with him when he prayed in his darkest hour. And this morning we're going to see a, a talk by Timothy Keller. Uh, it lasts about 30 minutes. I'm not going to say too much more or seal his thunder. But it's about praying in our darkest hour. And uh, I'm not prophesying we're going to have a darkest hour. But within life we can go through some dark times. And... Where does prayer come into that when it is very dark and it's difficult? Timothy Keller speaks very well on this, so we're going to sit and listen to it now. It's a talk that he did at Holy Trinity Brompton um, in recent years, so we're going to listen to Timothy Keller. Thank you. Uh, I must apologize to you about the uh, sermon I'm about to preach because uh, the, the service is filled with joy. Uh, the worship up to now has brought us to a, a mountaintop, and now I'm going to take you into the valley. I, I do seriously need to at least warn you that there is a mountaintop on the other side of this valley, but we're going to be reading Psalm 88. It has to do with what, uh, how Christians should act when they are uh, going through very dark times. So I, I actually am uh, warning you, uh, especially the first of the four points of this sermon, is a real downer. Uh, but there really is, as we go into the valley, there really is uh, uh, something wonderful on the other side. Now let me read to you from Psalm 88. I'll just read verses 1 to 2 and then 6 to the end, 18. 
O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? To those who are dead, rise up and praise you. Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your, your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and my loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. Now, the Bible, especially the book of Psalms, is filled with prayers by suffering people, people who are going through darkness. But virtually all of them end on a note of hope. So almost all the prayers that you read in the Psalms by uh, uh, people who are uh, in difficult times, they're going through suffering, by the end of the, the prayer, there's always some note in which uh, the psalmist says, I see you here, or I know I will see your goodness in the land of the living, or I, I, I know you're with me, or something along that, those lines. But there's two psalms, and I've, we're looking at one of them. There are two psalms in the Psalter, Psalm 39 and Psalm 88, that do not end on a note of hope at all. In fact, you'll notice the word darkness shows up three times in this psalm, including at the end. It's clearly the theme. And actually, even though in the English translation, the last line is, darkness is my closest friend, in, in Hebrew, the last word of the psalm is darkness. In other words, the very, very end, uh, a more literal translation would be, and my only friend, my closest friend now, is darkness. And that's the end of the prayer. Now, what kind of prayer ends like that? What kind of prayer ends not in hope but in darkness? What is this prayer doing in the Bible? It's here, I think, to teach us a number of things. Four things. This, this psalm is going to teach us that darkness can be something that lasts a long time for a believing Christian. A believing Christian can be in darkness for a good while. That's the first thing. Secondly, however, it will teach us there's no better place to learn about the grace of God than in dark times. And also, there's no better place, thirdly, to become a person of greatness than in dark times. And lastly, darkness can be relativized. Let's look at these, three, these four things. First of all, the first thing we learn here is that darkness is something that, for a believing Christian, can last a good while. This man says in the very beginning, you are the God who saves me. So he's actually trusting God as Savior. 
He's trusting God as Savior, and he's praying. He says, every day, I'm praying to you, and I'm coming to you, and I'm calling to you, and I'm trusting you as Savior. Now, there's two kinds of darkness. Outer darkness has more to do with the circumstances of your life. We don't really know exactly what's happening to this man. We do know that he's losing all of his friends. We also know that he seems to be facing death. At least, it's either imminent or possible because those questions where he says, do the dead rise and pray you, praise you? Uh, is your righteousness known in the land of oblivion? He's clearly facing death. We're not sure exactly what the problems are, but actually I always find that in the book of Psalms, when I'm reading this, uh, a prayer by a person suffering, and I don't quite know what the person's going through, it's easier to make it my own. It's easier for me to enter in and, and have it help me. So outwardly, his, the circumstances of his life are darkness, but inwardly he's experiencing darkness too. You see, if outwardly things are going very badly in your life, but inwardly you sense God's presence and love, you can make it. But that's not what's happening here. He feels abandoned. He feels God is angry with him and has rejected him. He feels that God is gone. So he's experiencing both outward darkness and inward darkness, and he's praying, and he's trusting God as Savior. And by the end of, this, of the, the prayer... He's still in darkness. What is the teaching here then? And the teaching is that you can be a believing Christian. You can be trusting God for for your salvation. You can be praying and doing doing, uh, what you think you should be doing, and yet it doesn't get any better for a long time. Now, you might say, well, you warned me. This, This first point was a downer. And it is. On the other hand, it's a mercy too. Why is it a mercy? Well, First of all, it teaches us something. It teaches us about the realism of the Bible. Let me quote from that great work of art, The Princess Bride, (laughs) that movie, The Princess Bride. There's a great line in that great work of art. It goes like this. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. (laughs) Well, guess what? The Bible isn't selling something. If you're thinking about becoming a Christian, if you're wondering whether I should have anything to do with Christianity, I want you to know Christianity is realistic. It's not selling you anything. It tells you you can do everything right, and you can have pretty long times in which the darkness just doesn't lift. But there's also a mercy here. See, our expectations... uh, uh, Kathy and I, over the years, have had people actually literally say this, or they say it in different words. They say, when I became a Christian, I figured that now that I'm a Christian, now that I'm walking with God, nothing really bad could happen to me. And you see, when, if that's your expectation, that now I'm a Christian, I'm kind of safe. Bad things can't happen to me. I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I, you know, I'm a good person now. I'm, I've cleaned up my life. Bad, real bad things can't happen to me. Well, you say okay, uh, I know somebody better than you, way better than you, Jesus Christ. And he did not have a great life. He was rejected. He was tortured and killed. In other words, and, and he actually says, by the way, Jesus says in John chapter 16, in this world you will have trouble. Remember that? And he even says, a servant is not above his master. Uh, the world hated me, it's going to hate you. And, and here's the mercy. Expectations are a big part of how you handle suffering. 
Because the suffering is painful and terrible. But what if on top of that, and this is your fault if you do it, the suffering may not be your fault, but, the, but false expectations, the idea that, well, now that I'm following Jesus, bad things really can't happen to me, even though they happen to Jesus, but they won't happen to me. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus says. And your expectations, if they, if they are aligned with reality, uh, knowing that the Bible is not selling anything to you, if they're aligned with reality, it can, have a, uh, it can help you enormously face the troubles. Because very often, half the pain that you're experiencing is not from the suffering, it's from those false expectations. How could this be happening? It shouldn't happen to me. A servant is not above his master or her master. So this is the, you know, okay, let's, let's uh, just, you should be glad to know this is the worst of the four points. And yet there's a mercy in it. Adjust. The Bible's not selling anything. There's a realism about Christianity. And therefore, you really can stay in darkness a fairly long time and, and, and be a Christian and, do th- and pray to God. But point two, it's in the dark times that are the, the dark times are really the best place and time to learn about the grace of God. See, I've given the man credit, but let's, let's take a look at, at the way in which he prays. Here's, here's some things he's not doing all that well. <clears throat> For example, some of this prayer is not really a prayer. It's an interrogation. So, for example... When he says, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? These are, these are sarcastic rhetorical questions. He says, is your faithfulness known in the land of destruction? Here's what he's saying. He says, I want to be your witness. I want to tell the world about you. How am I going to do that if I'm dead? If you, I have all these things I want to do for you. You know that. And yet you're not letting me do any of them. What the, how much sense does that make? He comes very close to saying, answer me, God. Uh, Some people would call this intemperate. Some people would call it blasphemous. It's probably somewhere in the middle. But of course, he's not controlling his heart. He's not being deferential. He's not being respectful. He's not saying, thy will be done. Oh, no. Also, by the way, many commentators point something out that you might miss. I certainly have over the years. But there's another place where he says, from my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. From my youth I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Now we're going to see in a minute, because the, uh, the heading of this psalm tells us who this person is who's writing this, or praying this, uh, that this is almost certainly an exaggeration. What he's actually saying is, all my life I've been in danger of death. All my life you have been abandoning me. You know, you've never been there for me, God. Never. That's really what he's saying, and, and almost certainly that's an exaggeration. And there's a tendency for us to do that when we're in despair, when we're just uh, out of our minds with anger and grief and, and fear and despair. We, we, we tend to read everything in our life through that moment. Uh, instead of standing back and saying, well, Lord, in the past you did many good things for me, and some of the Psalms do that, this guy is not doing that. This prayer is not doing that. He's saying, you've never been there for me. He's exaggerating. He's cross-examining God. He's being incredibly disrespectful, if not blasphemous. And, of course, the last statement, darkness is my closest friend, is quite a charge. You know what he's saying? He's saying to God, God, darkness is is a better friend than you are right now. I'd rather have darkness than you. Even darkness is more of a comfort than you are. So he's not doing things very well. And you have to ask yourself the question, why in the world 
is this prayer in the Bible. And many years ago, uh, this prayer and also Psalm 88 and Psalm 39, which are very similar, Psalm 39 ends with the psalmist saying, turn your face away from me, God, so I can get a little bit of peace before I die. So Psalm 39 and Psalm 88 end with this uh, despair and this anger toward God, and it just ends that way. And I always did, I never knew what to do with these prayers. I just sort of, sort of skipped over them really quickly. I would never imagine, by the way, preaching on them. And then, but many years ago, I read uh, just two, two sentences in a little commentary by Derek Kidner. Derek Kidner was the warden of Tyndale House in Cambridge for many, many years. And uh, talking about these prayers, he said something that just went through me like a shaft. It changed my life, not only toward these prayers, but it changed my life in understanding how to handle darkness. And this is what he said, quote, the very presence of these prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. Now, do you realize what that means? What, what Kidner is saying is the very fact that God put these in the Psalter, God put them there. They're there because God put them there. What does that tell us about God? A lot. See, you don't have God looking at this prayer saying, I don't want that in my Bible. My goodness, I don't, want, I don't want anybody to think that it's okay to pray like that. I don't want to identify myself as the God of someone who prays like that. But God does put it in the Bible. And that means God is identifying with those of us who sometimes pray like that. You know why? He's a God of grace. He's understanding. He knows how we speak when we're desperate. Oh, my word. God is saying, I am the God of this man, even though he's not getting it right. Because I'm a God of grace. And here's what he's saying to you. God is saying to you through this psalm, he says, I am your God, not because you put on a happy face in the morning. I am your God, not because you say everything right, not because you do everything right. I'm your God because I'm a God of grace. You know how liberating that is. I can tell you, I, let me just say, I've learned 10 times more about the grace of God in dark times than I ever did in times of prosperity. Number three, not only are dark times the best places to learn about the grace of God, they're also the best places to become a person of greatness. What do I mean? Well, it's true that he's not doing things right, He's saying a lot of things he shouldn't be saying. He's insulting God. He's saying quite a few things he shouldn't be saying. But he is saying them to God. And that reminds us of the entire book of Job. See, let's think about the book of Job. Job the book of Job starts with Satan coming in to the presence of God, and God says, have you seen my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth. And Satan says to God, does Job serve God for naught? Does Job serve God for nothing? So what Satan's doing is he's, he's questioning the idea that, God, that, that Job really serves God or really loves God. And here, basically, here's what he's saying. He says, when he says, does Job serve God for nothing? What he's saying is, Job is in a transactional relationship with you, God. Job is doing X, Y, Z, but only because you do X, Y, Z. 
Job is praying and he's going and he's making, doing sacrifices and he's, and he's obeying your commands. But because you answer his prayers and you bless him and you give him your peace and you do all these things, he's not really loving you for you. It's all transactional. He's actually loving himself and using you. He's doing things only because you are benefiting him. So take away those things. Give him outer darkness and inner darkness. And you'll see he'll curse you because he's just a mercenary. He doesn't love you for yourself. He's loving himself and using you. Now, that's quite a charge, uh, especially when you, that has probably happened to everybody in this room at one point. Have you ever thought that somebody liked you for you, that they actually just loved you or liked you? And then you found out they were using you because they felt like, well, you could open a door for them. Or through you, they could, they could get to somebody else. And it's a horrible feeling of being used. You feel like, hey, I thought you liked me, and you're just using me. Okay? Well, how do you think God feels? And how much less appropriate is that to use God that way? So what Satan is bringing up is actually very important. And, of course, don't forget that the book of Job was written to everyone to read. Now, whoever wrote the book of Job did not want us just to hear that Satan was saying that about Job. The author of the book of Job wants us to see that, Jake, that Satan is saying that about us. Satan is saying, do we really serve God for naught? Do we serve God for nothing? Do we really love God for himself? Or are we in a transactional relationship? Okay, so, uh, class, is Satan right about you and me? And I think the honest answer, please don't answer that, I'm the preacher, uh, I think the right answer to that is, to some degree, yeah. At least we all start out that way. Let's be honest about it. We all come to God. It doesn't mean you don't really trust in Christ as Savior. I'm not saying you haven't really said, I really want to believe and I really want to follow Jesus. But to a great degree, in the beginning, we come because we got a problem or because we got a need or there's an emptiness or something. And we come because we want something. And if we stay in that state, we'll be up and down depending on how things are going. There's, a certain, there's still a self-centeredness in the middle of our Christianity. And it's the reason why we're getting all knocked around all the time. Everything, something comes along and it, 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 you say, why isn't God doing this? And we really get cast down and get upset. But here's what's happening. An Old Testament professor years ago, trying to help me understand the book of Job, said, do you notice how after Job says all these terrible prayers, because a lot of Job's prayers are very similar to this. He's always saying terrible things to God. But at the very end, Job, uh, God says, Job has honored me. And he actually turns to Job's friends and says, you better, better ask Job to pray for you or I'm going to smite you. Job has honored me and you have not. And the Old Testament professor said, why in the world, after all those terrible prayers, <laughs> would God say, Job honored me? And he says, the answer is, they were prayers. You see... Job was being angry, and he was complaining, and he was being angry, but he was, he was being angry and complaining to God. He never walked away from God. He said, I don't understand you, God. I'm angry at you, but he never turned away. He stayed with God when he was getting nothing out of it, which means in the end, Satan was defeated. And what's happening here? is this man, even though he is not in any way praying the way he ought to pray, he's still praying. He says, darkness is my closest friend, but he's saying it to God. 
which means Satan is defeated. Which means when you go through darkness, if you don't feel God's there, but you hold on anyway and you say, you know what? You're God and I'm not. And I'm not getting anything out of this, but I'm still going to pray. I'm still going to go to church and worship. I'm still going to love my neighbor. I'm still going to do the things I ought to do. That will turn you into a person not self-centered, not in a transactional relationship, up and down all the time. It'll turn you into a person of endurance, of stability, of strength, of greatness. At the end of the uh, book, Lord of the Rings, the book, not the movie, Sam, you know, the friend of Frodo, they're on their way to Mount Doom, and they're getting close to the end, and their strength is almost out, and Sam looks up to the top of Mount Doom, and he suddenly realizes, we're going to die. No matter what happens, we're going to die. And the thought comes to him, just lay down, curl up in a little ball, and go to sleep. And then, what the text tells us, then something begins to happen. And it says this, quote, But even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him, and he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. He was being turned into something of greatness, and it's in the darkness where you throw away that transactional approach. It's almost like when bad things happen, God is looking at you and saying, okay, now we're going to figure out whether you got into the Christian faith to get me to serve you or in order that you would serve me. Now we're going to find out. Because right now, you're not going to get much out of a relationship with me. Now we're going to see whether you're serving me or yourself, whether you're loving me or yourself. And when you say, okay, I'm going to love you, I'm going to serve you, it's going to change you. It's going to make you an unflappable person. It's going to make you, you know, what it made Sam, you know. He was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. Now, lastly, it does begin to, we've actually up to now really not addressed the question. He believed his darkness was objective. And he believed his darkness was permanent. He says so. He doesn't believe, he's not saying, I just feel that you're not here, God. He's saying, you're not there. And he doesn't say that this is temporary. He says, this is permanent. In other words, uh, this man believed that his darkness was absolute, not relative. It wasn't temporary. It wasn't subjective versus objective. And it wasn't, he wasn't saying subjectively, I feel you're not there, but objectively, I know you're there. No, no. It was absolute. But we know he's wrong. We know his suffering actually was relative. It was temporary. And that God really was there for him. How do we know that? Well, because the, uh, the psalmist, the man who wrote the psalm, was a man named Heman. Not Haman, who was the villain of the book of Esther, but Heman. And what we know about Heman is this, that in First Chronicles 6, Heman was the leader of the Kohathite guild of musicians and poets who wrote many of the psalms. If you want to go see some of them, they were in, uh, they're in the 40s, go to the, the 40s in the psalms, or the 80s in the psalms. Now keep this in mind. The psalms, the, the book, the psalms, is one of the greatest 
works of literary history in the history of the world. Everybody understands that, whether you're a Christian or not. And that means that this man wrote some of the greatest literary art, musical art, in the history of the world. It means millions of people have been helped by him. And what does that mean? You know how pressure turns a piece of coal into a diamond? This suffering was not absolute. It was relative. It was temporary. And God was there because through this suffering, this man was being turned into a great artist. Somebody who, by the way, do you think Heman, when he was going through this, thought that 2,500 years later, several thousand people in the middle of London would be talking about his great works? Do you think that's what they, they, they would have thought? Absolutely not. He couldn't have thought that. But you see, he couldn't see it. But we can. What we can see is that God was there, that God was working. It was temporary. God was turning him into something wonderful and great that he was going to use the rest of, for centuries. And you can know that too. If God is your Savior, if you're relying on him, he is there even though you don't feel it. He hasn't abandoned you. He is working. You say, well, how do I know that? Here's how you can know that. The end of the book of, at the end of Psalm 39, God's face is turned away. The end of Psalm 88, darkness. Losing God's face, darkness. Does that sound familiar to you? Matthew 27, 45. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness came down over all the land. At the ninth hour, Jesus Christ on the cross cried, My God, my God, why have you turned your face from me? No, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open and the body of the holy people who had died were raised to life. Heman thought he was getting the absolute total darkness. He was totally abandoned by God. No, Jesus got the total darkness that Heman thought he was getting. When Jesus went to the cross, he was abandoned. Really? Not just subjectively. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus Christ really got the wrath of God. Not just I felt the wrath. He actually got the wrath of God. Everybody abandoned Jesus, so only Jesus Christ, of all the people who have ever trusted God as Savior, only Jesus Christ. Darkness really was his only friend. His disciples had left him. His people had left him. His father had abandoned him. Darkness was his only friend. You know why? He was taking the sins upon himself that we've committed. Satan's right about us. We do exploit others. We are self-centered. We do use other people. We deserve to have God turn his face away from us. We deserve that darkness. But Jesus took the darkness so that when you believe in him, your sins are forgiven. Or put it another way. Jesus Christ experienced darkness as his only friend, so in your darkness you can know that Jesus is still your friend. He's still there. Jesus was truly abandoned so that you will only feel abandoned, and you can know that God's still there. He's not going to abandon you, no matter what you've done wrong, because of what Jesus Christ has done. He's taken the penalty. It all fell on him. It all fell into his heart. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he felt that darkness coming down on him. And he knew that he had to die in order to save us. He stayed with us. He did not abandon us in his darkness. So why in the world do you think he would abandon you and yours now? He won't do it. 
listen, you remember that sarcastic question? That sarcastic question that Heman asked, what he said? He says, do the dead rise up and praise you? If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the answer is, yeah, you will rise up. And you hold on to that. You hold on to that. I know a woman with some chronic illness. Occasionally you ask her, how are you feeling? Doesn't it hurt? Aren't you in a lot of uh, discomfort? And she says, nothing that the resurrection won't cure. And she's absolutely right. (laughs) Hold on to that. Cling to that. Michael Wilcock is another guy who wrote a really great little commentary on, on this psalm, and this is what he says. I'll close with these words. He says in, about Psalm 88, This darkness can happen to a believer, this psalm says. It doesn't mean you're lost. This darkness can happen to someone who does not deserve it. After all, it happened to Jesus. That doesn't mean you've strayed. This darkness can happen at any time, as long as this world lasts, because only in the next world will such things be done away with. This darkness can happen without you knowing why. But there are answers. There is a purpose. And eventually you will know it. 